Amen, right? It really is God's word. And may he write it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. Uh, here we are studying through Acts. We know Paul has missionary journeys in this book, and you just saw the end of the second one. That's what that was right there as he's made it back to Antioch. Uh, tent makers and barbers is what we tried, we tried to call this sermon as we planned it out. Um, and uh, that's because the way this begins and ends, you hear this is a deep dive into even more example that the Apostle Paul gives of what it looks like to preach the gospel and to reach a city, if uh, is his desire, with that gospel. And so as we dive into this this morning, I want to tell you uh, something I've tried to do uh, the last couple of years that I don't get to do anymore. So I was a teacher for two years doing bivocational, uh, this work, and, and teaching at the 10th graders over at Regents Academy here in Nacogdoches. And I, for those two years, asked my 10th graders at the very beginning of the first day of class, I told them, I know that you've grown up in and around classical Christian education. I know that you've grown up in and around the church. Uh, most of you, uh, all of them, uh, for, for both years, had parents that were members of churches. But I told them, looking them in the eye, I said, I want you to raise your hand. If you personally can tell me that you self-conscientiously are a committed follower of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand, and they would raise their hands. Now, I would think that most of you today more than likely would say you are as well, and you'd raise your hand. Along with the students that I taught, I, I challenged them. I would ask, can you testify at, that to Jesus as Lord with a credible example of your life before Christ, your understanding, and uh, applying by faith the hope of Christ?" That you have. Could you tell someone of the commitment you have to Christ? Most of them would say yes. I hope most of you today have found Christ by faith and could say it. But some of them were honest and they admitted they would struggle to do so. I would then ask them, if you can say yes with hope to both of these things, then what is next with your life? What is your purpose? Even as I looked at a year of getting to educate them and help them understand it, I wanted them to understand at the very beginning for the last two years the same thing that I would want any Christian to understand, what I think a church would understand. Do you know what your purpose is as a Christian? There are many answers, right? I mean, we could see, search the catechisms. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, the chief end of man is to, you know, uh, it, it, it sounds like this in Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, to uh, keep... God's commandments and fear him, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of a man. The Bible comes at it from many angles, but the ultimate root of what we are created for is to glorify God. And I think you'll find, as we, you've been finding with me as we've been studying Acts, that obedience to God's word really is the, the example to follow. And when it comes to the Apostle Paul, Acts 18 is an example to follow, like through and through. From the tent maker type introduction we get to the vow that he ends up closing out toward the end of this journey, Paul is displaying for me and you, if you want strong answers to the questions that I've asked my students, as I've told you, and I'm asking you this morning, that I am in Christ and I'm ready to follow him and do his will. Paul provides us an example of how to do that. He's been doing that. He'll do it even more here my invitation to you this morning is, will you see with me uh, in Corinth the priority of, God, of, of Paul's gospel? Okay, that, that's going to be point one. The priority of Paul's gospel. There's a priority 
that is in this text, given to the gospel, seen in Paul. Secondly, we're going to look at this morning, that it's not only a priority that Paul gives to the gospel, there is a preservation of Paul's gospel ministry as well in this text. So he's committed. He's got the priority of the gospel. The second thing we'll see today and then be done in this passage is the preservation of Paul's gospel ministry. Let's get some context first. Uh, Just so you know, last week when we were in this book, Paul left the ancient, uh, massive, cultural-shaping city of Athens. Uh, Acts 17, one of the most famous uh, preached uh, ending of that chapter, at least, you know, passages in all of, all of Christendom. I mean, people love to preach it because Paul's there on this mount called Mars Hill where, you know, Ares Hill, if you're looking at the Greek gods, and, and he's standing there because everybody stood there and everybody gave their two cents as to what they believe about big questions in life. And Paul's told them about the resurrection. He had little to uh, what we would say, you know, in, in a wrong way, we would say, oh man, he didn't have a lot of results. He had a couple of people, one major philosoph of the day, uh, follow him and follow Jesus, ultimately, and another sister and a few. He's left that city. Uh, We talked about last week that that city wouldn't see an established church presence, best we can tell, until maybe four or 500 A.D., and so, I mean, we're talking a long time that seed that was sown in Athens laid in the ground uh, from a historical perspective. And Paul, as you would maybe think, is discouraged as he heads into Corinth. Well, you'd be wrong, right? He's not discouraged. Uh, We see that in this text, his team, which includes Silas and Timothy, are not there yet. They're coming. And you heard in the text there, you know, they were sent out with Paul and Antioch, and uh, they're going to join him here in Corinth as he does a long work. I think we need to see finally, uh, contextually here, before we really dive into this first idea, is that this passage of scripture covers 18 months. You realize that? A year and a half is covered, uh, and maybe some more with the many days. I think this gives our passage a certain historical clarity that we need to talk about first. Um, I think it also requires us to think on a bigger scale as we look at an example of Paul today. You see, Luke, who wrote this, his intent here, um, it is brevity, Uh, you know, historical brevity. He's trying to cover a history moment, but he's trying to do it so intentionally that you can grab onto some things. You can really get a feel for what happened for a year and a half in a city that God declared, I have people in. You feel the weight of that? I hope you do, because that really is the context. God loves the Corinthians. And he showed his love for it by shedding his own you know, son's blood. And the message that comes to them is that message. And so the context here is, is rich, was it not? I mean, who is Gallio? Well, that was a real Roman uh, leader that was set up in Corinth to kind of be capable of making judgments among them. The way that Pilate was set up to make a judgment to crucify this Jesus. You, bet, you best believe Paul's going to be talking to the Jews in the synagogues about that for a long time, right? For a year and a half uh, among them and the Gentiles. And he's saying, this Gallio is just like this you know, Pontius Pilate who killed this Jesus. You need to make those connections. You need to understand when it says Claudius was this Roman emperor, he was an actual emperor. Years 41 through 54. He's the one that took Judea and made it a Roman province, So the history here, Luke does it quickly, but I want you to know it's important. It should flavor the way that we understand this. 
Now, those are some important contextual tools I'm trying to give you even this morning to help us really get after the sermon, the priority of Paul's gospel. That's point one. When we discuss Paul and his gospel priorities, I think in this text, we kind of see they're practical, they're practiced, and they're provoking. They're provoking. Okay? Now, Paul's, you know, his priority is very practical. That's what we really see and I want to talk about first. Uh, we see this clearly in his first actions in Corinth. So before he is established uh, by God there for you know, a year and a half, we see in verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Paul is very practical. Now, how did Paul just go into this city, a massive and, and, and strong city there in, in the Greece area, how did he go in there and find a Jew? Not only a Jew, but a Jew who seems to either have been converted by him, maybe, uh, or was probably converted beforehand. Uh, probably has already heard, as the gospel we know has gone, you know, after Acts 2, it, it was dispersed in the great persecution, some even to Rome. And so, uh, you know, how did he find them? Well, verse 3 explains that they have a common trade, right? Uh, they're tent makers together. Now, you may be thinking like REI or some, you know, like nice tent that you could put up in a moment. It's really not what we're looking for. It's really more like leatherworking. Uh, they were leather workers. And so they would like, you know, make things and create all kinds of various items out of, out of leather. And, you know, when it came to this day when there were Jewish teachers and Paul's the missionary entering into a context with a trade, there were teaching among the Jews even. Rabbis would say, if you're going to go be a missionary, even you know, a Jewish missionary, trying to convert Gentiles, have them proselytize, um, you, know, you would never be idle or take pay for what you're doing. You would support yourself. And so it seems as though Paul, uh, in some ways, didn't want to break with a plan there. And so he makes an effort. And you'll see this in many scriptures. He is always willing to work alongside his uh, ministry. Okay, He writes explicitly to congregations later uh, in Tim through Timothy that they should take care of ministers and there is this idea of you know, support. And even Paul himself receives numerous amounts of gifts and support and, and doesn't do this in every city. But I bring this up because it's not a double standard that Paul has. Um, Paul is ready when it comes to his priority of the gospel. He's ready to make it practical. Paul's not just taking the gospel to the synagogue, the church service. He's taking it to the street I mean, he's willing to show up and with his own hands work and with that work, go out and to, and, and to bless others, right? So, but in that, he's using it to make contacts. And lo and behold, who does God get him to connect with? Priscilla and Aquila. This is a big name in the book of Acts. It will remain a big name in the book of Acts. It's a big name in the church of Rome. It will remain a big name in the church of Rome if you read the letter to the Romans. These, this couple... Uh, you know, Aquila and Priscilla, they meet Paul because of Paul's practical wisdom, I think. I think he was practically in there. Now, before we move on quickly here, I want to ask you a question. Paul was ready to share in the normal marketplace of his life. I think me and you need to ask ourselves this morning, are we? If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, and you've been called to Christ, you're called to it in each of your workplaces, into what you do, into who you've become. 
If your identity is associated with something like business, like waiting on tables, like doctor work, like raising up a household of children, like dancing, like going to soccer practices and weekend hangouts, are you, like Paul, practical in your engagement? Are you thinking like him? He knew when he woke up, I'm stretching leather today. He also knew I'm looking for opportunities to preach Jesus. It's a challenge, right? So first, I think the gospel made Paul urgently practical. Secondly, Paul's priorities were practiced. So it's not just that he had a mindset to be practical. He actually practiced these things. I mean, uh, he was not a lazy man, is what I'm trying to say. Paul was a disciplined man. Let me just look, look, look at the text again. Uh, verse 4, what was he doing? He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Okay, verse 5, when, when Silas and Timothy arrived, what was Paul doing? He was occupied. In other words, he was consumed with the word, right? He was consumed with preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Look at verse 11. After he was left, uh, the synagogue, you know, after he's left it and is going to the Gentiles directly, what does it say? He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, is that not a full-fledged pastorate example in an apostle, right? I mean, a year and six months, if you've been paying attention, you know, be clear, we are not apostles today, right? We don't believe that, but we have the same urgent call as pastors and preachers, and then also even as those who have been born again and given the same commands of Jesus to go, we have an urgency, and I think oftentimes people who would maybe look at what should we do with the Spirit and this urgent you know, desire we have to go see the cities and the churches reach. We blow in, we blow out. That's often what we've taken an approach of, especially in the last 50 to 100 years in our evangelism. We want to see it big and Pentecost and, and, it's, and it's established in a matter of days and we spontaneously baptize a whole bunch of them and you know, we make these professions of faith, but that's not always the pattern. Especially it's not the pattern in Acts. It started there, but now Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. So if anyone's been given the spirit in a special way in this season to go and declare the glories of God, he's going to take a year and a half to do it. A year and a half. Think about how much happens in a year and a half. I think we need to notice this because it tells us about the practice of faithful missionary work. Sure, some churches in these cities he's gone to have been planted in one to two weeks or a matter of months. That has happened. And yet here we have God himself declaring to Paul, stay there. I've got many here. And he stays for 18 months. You know, the next city he'll go to, Ephesus, which kind of ends his journeys before he makes a journey to Rome, 27 months will he spend in Ephesus. Seems to be a normal pattern in Scripture. Ephesus then leads him going to Rome. Years he spends as he awaits trials, both in Jerusalem and in Rome. I slow down here on this point really to show Paul's practice. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Like he really was a practice man. But to note, I think what Luke is noting for me and you today. After the initial explosion of the gospel to the Greek world, there's this slowing and yet steadying, okay? Slowing and steadying pace that really 
comes alongside the apostolic mandate. We see this because what becomes the, the church church's mandate, it's, that's what the church picks up. It picks up the tradition of what? The apostles and then the teachers and the elders and, the, and those who have been given. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a belief once handed down to us from the, the, the founders, right? The saints. And that inheritance becomes all the letters that follow Acts. It becomes the slow and methodical work of discipleship and a commitment long-term to someone who would say, I'm no longer a part of the world. I follow Jesus. Again, back to the introduction. If you're looking for some credibility to what you say when you say you follow Jesus, be patient. Be patient. Sometimes God's work takes time and a year and, and eight, uh, excuse me, 18 months, a year and a half, Luke wants us to know is what it took to establish the work there in Corinth. He did teach the word of God among them. We need to see that. Look at verse 18. After this, and this is after we read about the violent riot that Blake read, Paul stayed many days longer. You want to talk about practice that Paul did? His priority was practice even after persecution. He stayed many days, likely to his uh, you know, great danger, but he wasn't scared off of his task. Nothing would make him buckle or back down. He did not grow weary. He kept doing what he was called to do until eventually he was gone. Do you see verse 18? Verse 18 says, you know, uh, the comment about his hair, right? At this city, you know, uh, Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now that's weird language because me and you, we don't really deal with vows. And so, you know, let's kind of talk about this idea of what he's done here. Most scholars do admit, we don't know what vows in view here. The ones that do venture to make, make a guess that I've read would say it's maybe like a Nazarite vow, the vow of a Nazarite, which you can read about in the Old Testament, and certainly in John the Baptist's life, someone who didn't drink any alcohol and they did not cut their hair. And so it's included in that. They abstained from a lot of those things to, to be set apart for the work of God. Uh, we don't know, but, but we don't need to know the details of the vow. We need to see the commitment in his practice to the gospel that came from it. He had started it and ended it in a certain season. So the tent maker who shows up in Corinth, Corinth is bound. <laughs> He's saying, I'm going to tent make, but I'm bound to something bigger. My hope and everything I have is something bigger. So I want reminders of it. I want to remember why I'm here. As my hair grows, I'm remembering why I'm being looking different than these others. <laughs> I'm, I'm being set apart. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching on fasting. You know, Jesus said, you fast when, you're not, when I'm not there. Why? Because it strengthens the memory of what's to come, right? You, you long to see. I mean, this is why he, they didn't fast when they were with Jesus. Jesus leaves and Jesus says, when they will fast is when the bridegroom, him, is gone. That's when they'll fast. In Matthew 6, he says, when you fast, fast like this, so it's an assumption that we'll fast. And so it's a lot like this vow, if you will, and the principles of it, because when you choose to fast as a follower of Jesus, it should not be for your own personal pride and, you know, religious, you know, look at me, look how good I am. Jesus said that's to be condemned. Instead, when you choose something like a, to vow to fast and not eat with every hunger pain, you cry out to God, do something, Lord. Strengthen my prayer life. Save my lost friends. Help me to love your word. God, grieve me over my sin. Let me be a bit closer to you. That's what's in view here. This man practiced his faith. Finally, look at verse 19. They came to Ephesus. 
Now, why is he going to Ephesus? He's going there to get on a boat to go all the way back to the Jerusalem area, right, where he ends and then goes eventually up to Antioch. So he's ending his journey. And so while waiting in Ephesus, more than likely about a week because he had to wait for ships to take a ship to ride a ship all the way over from where we are in Greece to then, you know, Palestine today in the Middle East. So he's got to, you know, he's going to be on a boat. While he's waiting, kick his feet up, right? I mean, he just saw the gospel go to the ends of the earth, right through him, you know, God using him in Corinth. Man, this man was practice. The vow's broken. Maybe it's time to vacation, right? No. Paul says, I'm here on the Sabbath. I'm going into the synagogue. Why? I want to preach Jesus here. And of course, the text tells you he'll be back. <laughs> so Ephesus, to be continued, okay? It's coming. Uh, but man, again, consider the practical and practiced discipline of Paul's priority here. When it comes to the gospel, this man is committed the point's clear, and I think it preaches itself when you see these verses that I've called your attention to. Let me ask you a question this morning. How does your pattern of life, Christian, how does your practice in life, Christian, how does it model what Paul is doing here? Are you willing and regularly giving up your own personal preferences so that others may know Jesus? Paul gladly said, I'll take this vow. I'll be ostracized for the sake of others. It's beautiful. As you tent make, brother and sister in Christ, working your trade, studying, managing your time, do you see the gospel as a priority like this man did, like Paul did? Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom we have is like a treasure hidden in a field that the one who finds it goes and sells everything he has and he buys the field. Is that what the, the good news of the gospel that we've sang, that I will tell you is the beautiful work of Jesus' life that was perfect, the death, if you place your faith in him in substitution for your sin that he bore, his glorious resurrection to show that he has power over death. He will raise you up in the last days if you put your faith in him. He ascends into heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father and right now his spirit regenerating the hearts of sons and daughters to call them into this. I'm asking you, is that gospel, is it like a treasure in a field? You know, Jesus stopped the parable there, but if we were to take the, the liberty to continue it, maybe the man who's in the field realizes the field is right beside a main roadway where tons pass by. And the joy he has for what he's found turns into a billboard, turns into an invitation. He can't stop it. Every chariot that comes by, do you see this lot of land? Oh, you don't think it's beautiful? Let me talk to you about it. Let me reason with you. This Jesus is the Christ. Quit chasing this lie. Chase this thing, this man, this God man. I think that's what Jesus would say. Paul was practical. He was practiced. Finally, we see that the priority of Paul's gospel, it didn't just show up in this practical practice thing. It also was provoking. Provoking. It's like sub point three if you're taking notes. Paul's priorities provoked people. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious in this text, isn't it? Ask yourself, right, what was the response that uh, he received from these Jews at Corinth? Well, it was very negative. Evaluate the facts with me. It says they opposed and reviled him. It's not nice words. We could say they resisted him with slander. They blasphemed him. They made it personal. They took an assault on his character even. And on his sanity, 
They wanted to bring him before the secular tribunal. The people, not even their own court, but like the Roman court. So Paul does the thing that Jesus taught his disciples to do, right? I mean, Paul is, 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 is basically a symbol now of judgment that the Jews would know well. So he shakes out his garments to them. That's what it says here. When confronted, when, when it's reached to this point that they will, not, they will not listen, Paul wants to shake out his garments. In other words, showing physically that their reaction is not them rejecting Paul. It's them rejecting Jesus Christ. And that is severe. He states it plainly, doesn't he? What does he say to them? Let your blood be upon your own head. Now, that's an illusion to something that these Jews and these synagogues would have understood was said through Ezekiel, the prophet. The prophet Ezekiel's instructions, when the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament receives in Ezekiel 3, he receives instruction from Yahweh, from God, of how he should preach and how he should tell these Israelites who are not trusting God by faith. Uh, in verses 17 through 19, I want you to listen to the language of Ezekiel. Son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him, the wicked, no warning, and nor, and you, nor speak to warn the wicked for his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood, God says to Ezekiel, I will require at your hand. You feel the weight of that? That's the weight of the priority that Paul felt. When he spoke to them, he wanted them to know that if they were to choose the path that Israel could choose, as Ezekiel told them, if they were to choose it again and to harden their hearts before God and to choose to not listen, if Paul doesn't go, if he doesn't warn them of the wrath to come and to repent and to trust in Jesus, then their blood's going to be on his hands. That text continues in verse 19. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, for his sin. But you, you will have delivered your soul. Now, the interesting thing here, Paul has done the latter. Paul's delivered his own soul. And so you would think that if he's cleared by God to not be guilty of their blood, you know, maybe this is where the love stops for these people, right? I tell you, it's not true. Go read the book of Romans, right? Side note, but just go read Romans. If you think Paul gave up on the Jews, you're wrong. And you've been wrong ever since we've been in Acts. It's like every city where they treat him like garbage, what does he do in the next city? He goes to them first. He even says, if I could be cut off and accursed, if it were possible to lose my own salvation, that some of my brethren, the Jews, would know Jesus, I would do it. Now, obviously, that's not possible, but that's a man who, to his dying death, said, I will hope that God will not let their blood be spilled unnecessarily, that they would repent and trust Jesus. I would hope in that. And he held out a true gospel to him to the very end. Why do I bring that up? Well, Sometimes our message is a provoking message, is it not? If you're going to get serious about following Jesus in this world, you're going to talk to, in this area, maybe many who have grown up in the church, many who have the right answers, 
I think you may have in mind, even as I say that, some friends and family, some cousins or some dear friends that you love. And their assumptions about Jesus sound correct, and yet their lives maybe don't live it. And you know that there's a warning brewing for them in the word of God that they neglect. You love them. You would be cut off from Jesus yourself if it meant you could see them. Come to know Jesus. And so you would put everything you have, I hope, into believing that while there's time, one man has died and risen from the grave and comes to them as a witness, and they hopefully will listen to him. You would make it your priority like Paul, that to even if it was a provoking message, you would share it. You would share it. For the truth spoken in love is a lot better than lies entertained for decades. There's this gospel clarity that this man has, right? When the time is right, Paul uh, does it. I mean, he's done it in Acts 13. Him and Barnabas, they boldly declared, look, it was necessary for us to be here. You cast it aside, we go to the Gentiles. Paul does do what the mandate he has is to do. Obedience is still on the table. I just want you to capture the moment with me that sometimes the message is a provoking message. Sometimes the gospel must offend people and only offend them. And then you walk away or you're not a part of their life anymore. But it's the best thing because really you're a part of their life. You see, Paul's a part of these people's lives. Even though he goes to Corinth and the rest and he, and he rejoices, I think his commitment is why we don't hear about Crispus. Did you see that in the text? The synagogue leader, Crispus, believes. We don't learn about Crispus until after this action. And then we hear, and some have believed, and one of them is a synagogue leader. Can you imagine someone holding on to their cultural identity of especially convinced that it's godly and saying, but I know that I know that I know that I prayed this prayer. I know that I've been following the commands. I know that I'm his. And you're telling them, you need to be Jesus's, not putting your faith in those things. Put your faith in Jesus. And then finally, God releases them. Maybe that's Christmas, right? I hope it is. Maybe it's this, this man who's actually responsible for a lot of the betrayal that takes place of, of denying Jesus. And yet he finally says, no, I'm coming with you, Paul. I'm coming with you next to this, this you know, Mr. Justice, this Gentile, friendly, friendly Gentile is another God-fearer. He lives right by the synagogue. Also, can we just say, side note, how cool is it that when things get really bad and Paul would rather be there, God does raise up a witness apart from the Jews, but he doesn't do it across town. He does it right beside them. <laughs> so like for a year and 18, I mean, for like 18 months, the Jews who are so upset, they got to keep seeing God showing them, look, a Gentile comes in, they repent, they believe in Jesus, they're baptized, they join the church. There's this normal practice of leadership being raised up. Look at this church forming. Yeah, they're a mess, but man, they love God. And they have to keep seeing that witness. I bet some continued to come over. I bet they did. Before things get ultimately bad, right? Um, sometimes you'll preach the gospel in such a provocative way that uh, they want to drag you before governors and kings for his namesake. You know, Jesus said that, right? Point two, it's the shorter one. But you know, when time gets rough, when Paul's gospel ministry, as we've seen, is a very practical and a very practiced, and it's a very provoking ministry in Corinth, when it finally reaches a point, a tipping point in the city, we realize something else kicks in that's been there the whole time. You know what it is? It's the faithfulness of God. It's what we call the preservation of the saints. 
It's the perseverance of his people. It's his genuine covenantal love. It's his hesed blessing that he had promised to Adam and Eve when they were there before him, before they transgressed, and they had it. It is the continual providential watching over of his people, and it's in this text. A man like Paul stays that way with his ministry because he wants to believe God's going to preserve it. Now, this is shorter to see, but it's powerful. I want you to see it. And I think it's devotional when we consider God's power in gospel ministry. Let's see it again. So it's all over our text. uh, But as we do consider one main statement, I want you to read it with me again. Okay? So verse 9 and 10. Pardon me. I need a drink. Find verse 9 and 10 in your Bible there. Be mindful of where we are. There's opposition. But Paul's going on and God's doing a work. Maybe Paul was thinking it was about to come to an end. Verse nine, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Now this is God speaking. This is Christ. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Isn't that beautiful? God communicating to Paul. He says, this is the Lord. You see the Lord in there? This is Jesus. The same Jesus that met him in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus when he was going to kill Christians is meeting him again. And he's saying, believe this. Now, was it like that? Was it like on the road to Damascus? Well, we don't get that kind of detail here. We do get a dream So we don't know if it's just in his mind or a physical reality, but know this, we don't need the details because we get the content and it's glorious, isn't it? Oh, it's glorious. I bet Paul was scared at times. We like to dehumanize Paul, make him like, you know, I'm honestly kind of like a demigod almost. But but he's he's a man. Uh, He's scared at times. He can be afraid. I've wondered if a frightening uh, thought was growing in his mind. Is this going to be like Lystra where they drag me outside the city and this time is the final time? Is this the conclusion of my life where they stole me to death? I mean, Paul has some serious maybe worries, right? And so uh, when God shows up to meet him, what's the first thing he says? He says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. That's the greeting of the angels and God throughout all of Scripture. When men, when men are doubting, their faith in God is wavering. The first thing that shows up to Abram or to you know, Jacob or to all these that get to see these kinds of days, God always says, don't be afraid. When the women, after Jesus is resurrected from the tomb, are there and, and the angels appear, what's their first reaction? Fear. And what does God say? Don't be afraid. It's always deeper. I think for Paul, the, the idea is you're not alone. You're not alone in your fears concerning personal evangelism. Paul, God is with you. He's commanded, actually, right? Do not be scared. Sounds like Joshua. Be only strong and courageous. Do not fear. God is with you. Paul was probably tempted to not preach. I mean, if you're discouraged by the opposition around you, you don't really want to stand up week in and week out. Maybe there were some weeks where he got there and the eye shot distance of the synagogue was bothering him. Maybe attendance there was a little bit better in the 18 months he was there than it was at church. I think Paul probably could have been a discouraged preacher who was forgetting to go on speaking and to not be silent. 
but true preachers can preach, and Paul shows that, but maybe he was weak. And so what's the message from God to him? I mean, before we even get to what he really wants, I got many people in this city, it's all this subjective stuff. If, you're, if you love lost people and you're struggling and thinking about reaching them, you need to lean in in this moment. That's why I think this last point is so devotional. This is not, I mean, we love the stuff that comes you know, from others, and there's, there's that in the Bible, narrative and whatever, but this is, this is verbatim. This is, quote, God. <laughs> Don't be scared. I'm with you. Don't stop speaking. I'm here. Do not be silent. I'm with you. It's encouraging. I'm sure he was a bit discouraged. This truth, when grabbed out of this for ourselves, now that we understand the context, I think it encourages us. This should preach itself to you if you're in Christ. It should shock your soul if you're not. If you're in Christ, this should should absolutely encourage you. If you're not in Christ and you are not trusting Jesus by faith, you haven't believed, it should shock your soul. This is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, looking on a city like Corinth. Now, I don't have time today to tell you what Corinth was. Let's just use one term, worldly. They were that in every sense of the word. Don't believe me? Go read 1 Corinthians. And God, looking on those wretches in his holiness, says, I have some and they're mine. And when God has something, he never loses it. Amen? Amen. And that God said, I have some of them and they're mine. Oh, if you're not in Christ today, do you believe this about God? He is a judge. You are a sinner. You need to repent and, run and fear him. He is to be feared. He is holy. He also loves people. He loves you. This is the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, has been given. Who was he given by? A father, 1 Timothy says before that, who wanted what? A God who who wanted all of mankind to believe. That is a true issuing from a mystery of God's providence to elect and to not elect comes with it this beautiful reality. God wants all. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. What a weird invitation to like understand the character of the most holy and the, the thing that could destroy you also has rhetoric that says, I have many in this city who are my people. Do you believe this? I hope so. It should comfort you when they don't believe <laughs> or when it takes time. These verses show us the internal heart work of God in Paul to preserve his gospel ministry, okay? So right now, what you just heard, that is very much in-house. Jesus to Paul, private, and we get in on it because Luke's reporting it. Thank God for that. This is very much like your quiet time. God just like, like, you know, through his word, gives you just a great assurance, something that you could just sink your your whole life into and you a life verse maybe, and you're following it, right? It's kind of like that. It's very personal. It's not very public, But it's a preservation thing, right? Man, God says, I am for you. I'm not against you. And I have people in the city. What about the public answer? Well, a riot started, didn't it? And you got these angry Jews wanting to beat the mess out of somebody. Uh, They hope to incite a viper of Rome to bite someone. That's what they hope to see happen. 
uh, maybe, just maybe, if the preaching of Jesus has been happening, it's come to their attention that the Pontius Pilate, who was also the, the, the proconsul there in Judea and in Jerusalem, uh, was the one who was able, they were, you know, the Jews were able to take the seat of Rome, the, the, the power of that serpent, and to you know, really strike down this Jesus uh, that, they're, you know, that they did. Remember that story? Well, Paul now is in a similar situation. They go and appeal to a Gallio, another proconsul that can maybe use that power. They do so in a riot. But man, this guy's got no ears for them, which is so funny. But why does he not have ears to hear them? You need to see this. It's not just a personal preservation of Paul's gospel ministry with what the Lord said in those verses. Do you notice in verse 14 what happens? Look at verse 14. There's the scene. It's a riot. There's some people being handed over. Maybe Paul himself. This is really intense moment. And verse 14 says what? But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, and then he goes on to explain. I want you to see this, though, because I think it's really important. They're wanting to take this converted Crispus and these other followers, maybe even Paul himself, and they are showing their true colors. They're going to uh, try to beat them, sure, uh, but they really want to see them dead. They want to make them out to be enemies of the state. It's really sad, actually. But what is the point that we see? Paul goes to speak about it. Paul's going to say, no, and before he can preserve the gospel witness that is true, who does the preserving? God, through this secular pagan. Isn't that amazing? I think it's so amazing. Here is someone, by all accounts, we can tell does not care at all about what the Jews or the Christians think. <laughs> Galileo is interested in one thing. I need order. And this is a nonsensical mess. And so granted, after verse 14, there's a lot of logistics. He's like, hey, y'all got your own courts. All I'm hearing is you guys are just squabbling over religion. Go do it. And yet, martyrs aren't happening, right? Persecution that would scatter a young fledgling congregation like Corinth is not allowed to break out. Instead, they're allowed to be sheltered in the providential uh, you know, plan of God. Here's this local governor that refuses to, to like he refuses to hear it. And now and here is God working through him, the real hand in the glove, to preserve the Corinthian church. Doesn't a church like Corinth, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, don't they need some time to work out with fear and trembling who they are in their salvation? You bet they do. So right when Paul would try to do that for them, no, 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 take me instead. He can't even speak because he has to see something. God's at work here, Paul. I think Paul's released from the Corinthians to go on into Ephesus and eventually back to Jerusalem to report because of this moment. The many days that happen after that probably are Paul putting in order even more to realize, look what God's doing for you guys. They won't even take it to the highest. You've got beautiful time here to reach so many more Corinthians. Chloe's people are probably there. If you go read 1 Corinthians, you get all these cool names. There's probably all of these fledgling believers that are going to grow up into maturity. But oh, what a testimony, I bet it was, to Paul's heart. To realize right when he was about to speak, hey, you, Gallio does it, and then he just smiles and says, You're right, you are gonna fight my battles, God. You really are. You know, I thought I was supposed to fight that battle, but you raised up this guy to fight it and protect your people. Praise be to you. Isn't that beautiful? Let this be an encouragement to you if you are a witness for Jesus. Be not afraid, live out the gospel in your life 
with your actions. Be ready to give a defense for those actions so that some who look in may believe. Oh, but also be ready to make a defense. Preach the gospel. Paul did all those things, and he encouraged the Corinthians to do it. It is true, other times Paul is beaten like poor Sosthenes here, which, I mean, talk about history, right? They, they wanted Crispus to get beaten or killed, maybe Paul as well. They say no, and in their anger, they still want blood, so they just beat their new leader. That, that's the current synagogue leader who replaced Crispus, their own, their own guy. Maybe he was even being like persuaded, no, they're going to have blood. It's really sad, but I mean, it's just ironic, right? Like these people were out for something. And while all that is unfolding in, in nastiness, the Corinthian church is preserved. Brother and sister here today, believe this in your own life. Many times also you will see the hand of God working for the preservation of the gospel message. God wants to do that personally over and over again in your life if your faith is in Christ. He wants to keep doing that and he will. His promises through Jesus to Paul are yours. Grab them. God is with me. He is for me. He's not against me. He loves me. And I will obey him. It's also public. So get out there and start getting serious about your witness because when you do, you'll realize sometimes God can even use a pagan like Gallio to actually do something for you. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's proof in the pudding for Christianity. Now, sometimes you wait to see it. I'll close with this. Adirondack Judson is a wonderful uh, missionary biography to go investigate. In 1812, Mr. Judson and uh, another couple, um, they went to India to preach uh, and to plant a church was the hope. They went to cities just like we're reading about in the book of Acts. It wasn't until 1819, seven years later, that they finally happened to see one convert that led to a few more that eventually led to a gospel work. Now, the stories in his biography of gospel priority, like we've seen in Paul, they're numerous. That's why you should read missionary uh, biographies, because you'll see what we see in Acts. You'll just see it over and over again. It's really cool. Judson was a practiced and, and patient and, and, and really a provocative minister. But Judson saw that, um, and, and then uh, it was a while until he had the stories of God's preserving power. But he did, and the people of Burma that he went to had an established church and witness. And today, you can still find Christians in Burma that understand uh, the great inheritance of the gospel they received through the servant, Judson. Now, seven years he labored, and without the hope uh, of those in that seven, he was just enduring patiently, he wrote this, quote, there is no success without sacrifice. If you succeed without sacrifice, it is because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it is because someone will succeed after. You see, that's the hope of the gospel. One has ultimately suffered in our place. We willingly sacrifice and we willingly suffer so that others may know him and we may not see him. One theologian said, you may sow seed, that goes in the ground and it lays there until after you do. It may not take root and grow until after you join it in the dirt. But know this, God's word never comes back empty. It will sprout in due time, right? And so with Judson type faith for seven years, with Corinthian mission type faith for 18 months with Paul, we need to be a people that labor in the hope that one day, if it's full of sacrifice and no success, someone will succeed after and if we must hold ourselves to the line of we never see it, we will see it, will we not? I hate that we're not taking communion every week in our church on weeks like this because the promise of communion is, and we do it every other week here, but the promise of communion is, is that we all hope together that one day this meal is going to be a meal that we're going to see. 
Is that not enough fruit, Christian? I mean, that's the idea of communion. You can hold on forever, a whole lifetime, because you know one day you'll see him face to face. And for this week, we just get to pray and ask for faith together, like Adoram Judson. I'll ask you the first question again. Are you self-consciously a Christian this morning? Can you testify to the relationship that God has started with you through Jesus Christ? And could you endure and persevere for a life to glorify him? If your faith is in Christ, what we're about to sing and what we're about to pray about, you can join us in. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth, and by it we are warned and we're warmed. God, warm our hearts with this. May we remember, Lord, help us as elders and pastors, Blake and I, Lord, as, as, as we have deacons in this church, as we have members, Lord, we have all been given this great hope. We have a high priest, we have a prophet, we have a great king in Jesus, and we are called into this priesthood ourselves to go and to declare your excellencies among a lost world. Father, across these streets that we're on today and our own homes and families, Father, we are to be the witness that we have an example of here in Paul. Help us, Lord. Help us to have a, a ministry like his that focuses and believes and that also sees your preserving work. It's in your name we pray. Amen.